Good morning, Redemption Parker. Good to see you guys. If you would, you can start making your way to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we'll be here in a few minutes. Exodus 20. My wife Holly has sat under some of my favorite theologians. I'm low-key jealous and not the kind of godly jealousy Mark was talking about last week. But often I'll, I'll, I'll still ask her, man, what, what did Jarvis Williams say about this? Or, or what, what view did Tom Schreiner take on this? Or what did Jonathan Pennington say about this? So when Holly came up to me a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning and said, babe, I'm reading through Exodus. I'm not going to lie. I'm struggling right now. I took a deep breath and leaned in. I'm usually the one wrestling with something theologically. After she begins to, to explain the passage from Exodus where God is giving his people the law. He, he gives instructions to the men about selling their daughters as concubines, as slaves. As I took a slow sip of coffee, I thought in my mind, why couldn't you have asked this to James Hamilton when you sat under him at your Old Testament class? It's a non-preaching week. Can't I just enjoy my bagel and cream cheese? But after putting my coffee down, I gave her the best answer I could. It wasn't brilliant, but she seemed to be okay with it. That was that. Until I got to church. Sometimes when I sit down for two messages, during the second message, I already know what Mark is going to say, I get a little curious, a little anxious about my next upcoming passage. So as I began to read my passage as Mark was preaching, fear and terror came upon me like it did Israel when they saw the smoke and the fire. Holly's conundrum is my next sermon. I'll get you back for that one, Mark. (laughs) Now, I didn't realize until this week how many other pastors, when working through the book of Exodus, um, even pastors I admire who hold a high view of expositional preaching, they'll preach the Ten Commandments, skip over the next section, my passage, and head straight for the tabernacle. So I was eager to talk with one of my mentors this week, Joey Dotson from Denver Seminary, who many of you guys know if you were at the men's retreat. I anxiously asked him with my notepad out, how would you preach this text, bro? He said, I wouldn't. I'm a New Testament guy. (laughs) (laughs) Must be nice. One megachurch pastor who's actually embarrassed by the Old Testament, he encourages other pastors to unhitch. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Let's not preach this because we're going to lose people, he says. And if you're somewhat aware of what's going on in American evangelicalism in 2023, you do understand what he's trying to say, though he's wrong. Many people are deconstructing their faith. But I would argue... Some of it is because we haven't explained the tough passages as they come to untrue conclusions that God is angry, sexist, racist. They want nothing to do with that God. I know some of you guys, if you're still going strong on that Bible reading plan, 
have probably either gotten pretty bored with what the heck is going on when you hit the middle of Exodus, or maybe some of you got to Leviticus and Numbers and you just quit. (laughs) Maybe it's not boredom, but, but you are curious. You have more questions than answers, like what in the world is going on? Man, you guys are locked in this morning. So I will say this, I don't have all the answers. Not at all. Some of this stuff is straight up hard. But I do think as a church, we need to go there. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Amen? Cool. So if you're not already there, why don't you open up to Exodus chapter 20. Begin in verse 22 and we'll work all the way through the end of chapter 22. So we won't cover it all as well, so feel free to read this passage later this week. God has just given his people the Ten Commandments. That was last week. This section this morning is typically called the Book of the Covenant or the Covenant Code. And right off the bat, we have an altar call. And this Altar call is ultimately a call to devotion to God. So if you look at with me at verse 22, this is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves what I have spoken to you from heaven. Now, if that language sounds familiar to you at all, it's because it is. Right before God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, he says in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. With Yahweh, with God, it's always grace and then law. Let's keep reading. Verse 23 Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Here the Lord is reiterating what he just said in the first two commands of the Ten Commandments. Right? If you are going to be my devoted people, if you're going to be my holy nation, no other gods. I don't care what their value is. They can be made of gold and silver. No other gods. God's total allegiance is what this God is after. The crazy irony here is within just a few weeks, Israel will be doing just this when they make a golden calf and worship it. God continues in verse 24 with the altar itself. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. I love that. I will come to you and bless you. What a promise. God is saying, Israel, you have seen my hand move in Egypt when I brought you from slavery, brought you out of slavery. You have heard my voice from the mountain. Will you be devoted to me? Or like it says in the last verse of our passage, chapter 22, verse 31, you are to be my holy people. Because if so, Israel, I will remain devoted 
to you. From verse 22 of chapter 20 all the way through the end of chapter 23, where Mark will be next week, is called the book of the covenant. Chapter 24 is the ratification of the covenant. The covenant is confirmed by Israel. In other places in scripture, the term the words and law, which comes up a lot, refers to the Ten Commandments and this law code. Matter of fact, when you hear law or law of Moses, this includes the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, and every other law you're going to find in the Old Covenant, 613 of them to be exact. To a Jew then and now, there was no dividing up of the law. The law is a single unit. Some Christians today like to split up the law. They say, well, here's the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Here's the civil law, some of what we're going to read today. And here's the ceremonial law, things regarding the place of sacrifice and worship. But to the Jew, to Jesus, this, this is nonsense. Unheard of. All of the law is moral. All of the law is worship. And what we're going to find out today is God cares about every area of your life. There is no secular, sacred divide with God. All is sacred. All of our lives are meant to be God-centered. So before we check out and get bored the next time we read through passages like we're going to handle today or something in Leviticus or Numbers... Be reminded, this is not boring. It's quite the opposite. The, the transcendent God of the universe cares about where most of us live in the ordinary. We could say for Israel, God's newly redeemed people, that these laws were about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They embody for Israel the, the vision of the good life, the kind of society that God wanted them to be in the context in which they lived. If you glance down and skim through our passage, you'll see what I'm talking about. We already talked about the altar. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, talk about the tenure and treatment of slaves. Verse 12 through 17, violence, willful versus accidental death, kidnapping. Chapter 21, verse 18, all the way through 22, verse 17, we have restitution, lost time, injury to a pregnant woman or her baby, death caused by livestock, injury to livestock, robbery, crop damage from negligence, items held in trust, items borrowed or rented. In chapter 22, verse 18 to 20, we, we have Sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, verses 21 to 27, foreigners, widows, and orphans, compassionate lending, and finally, verse 28 to 31, relationship with God. There's a reason for all of this diversity. Like I said, it shows that God is concerned with everything. Everything. They and we live 
all of our lives, every area of our lives in relationship to God. Most people, especially in our culture of the expressed individual, want to believe that there are personal and private areas of my life that aren't dictated by anyone else's standards except my own. But God's law is going to show us here that he has authority over every area of our lives. But like I promised earlier, we can't just skim over this law. If we actually read some of these laws, it can be quite hard for Westerners in 2023 to grasp and understand some of this. Look down at verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, or if you have an ESV, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Verse 7, this is what jacked up Holly. I'll read this one out of the CSB. When a man sells his daughter as a concubine, concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. Or look at verse 21. The slave is their property. Verse 28 to 32 is hard to grasp. It basically says, if your bull gores someone to death, kill the bull. If you know that your bull has a habit of doing this, then the bull dies and the owner dies. This is when men, women, sons, and daughters are killed by a bull. The owner dies life for life. Pretty easy math. But if the bull kills a slave, it's not life for life. Instead, you just pay 30 shekels of silver. Real talk, I don't have all the answers, not even close. And we need to realize it's okay to have questions. But will your questions and conundrums cause you to draw near to God? Or cause you to deconstruct and throw away your faith? Mark counseled me this week that that we need to question even our questions. Are you willing to throw it all away because you have a few tensions? I hope not. I hope you can live in the tension. But I do have, have three answers to a hard passage like this. I hope it helps. So here we go. Reason number one, this one's kind of up here. Reason number one, ultimately the reason I trust this without fully understanding it, although I do think we can understand it, but the reason I trust this without fully understanding it because, is because I trust Jesus. And Jesus trusted the law of Moses. Jesus was not ethnically prejudiced. Jesus showed zero favoritism and partiality and Jesus was not misogynistic. So whatever this law means, they come to us from the heart of a God who ultimately revealed himself as Jesus of Nazareth, who like the slave was sold for 30 pieces of silver. God himself became the man of sorrows, Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfilled the law of God on our behalf, took the curse of the law and hung on a tree on our behalf and 
rose from the dead, defeating sin and death again on our behalf. Because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Apostle Paul is able to say in a climatic fashion in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And though the redemptive arc of all of Scripture finds its culmination, its climax in Jesus, it does have to start somewhere. Which brings me to my second point, my second reason. My, my five-month-old son, Joey, who you've been hearing all, all, all sermon as well, he, he, he will be the center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers one day. Just mark my worth. I work in youth sports with Colorado. That's, that's how a lot of dads talk. But for the sake of illustration, let me continue. The kind of drills that he'll be doing one day with me and then eventually in, in spring training in Arizona are not the drills he's doing right now. Right now he's just touching a baseball. In a similar way, God enters into the story of Israel post-fall. We're not in Eden anymore. The redemptive ark is headed to a new Eden, but we're not there yet. God enters into a broken world, a post-fall world, and pushes things forward a little bit. But as one scholar says, the, the Bible often trades in brutal realities and not ideal situations. One example is God's law itself. When, when Jesus comes on the scene and he gives his sermon on the mount, he's standing on a new mountain as a new Moses with a new law, a better one. For instance, in our passage this morning, verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 23 says this, if you are to take life, uh, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. But what does Jesus say? You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. The law came in and it was gracious to move God's people forward in the arc of redemptive history. But it was not ideal. Michael Bird says this. It's a longer quote and sorry I didn't put it up on the screen, but you guys are locked in. So here we go. This is important. The Bible deals with the world as it is in its cruelty and moral chaos, a world with intertribal warfare, judges who take bribes, famine, foreign empires, pagan religion, slavery, curses, infanticide, exploitations, and patriarchy. Thankfully, God spoke his word into the context of the ancient Near East and into the Greco-Roman Mediterranean. It was a gracious word that dealt with the harsh realities of human existence. 
and it alleviated the misery of many. Yet, even as the divine word made things better, it did not always make things immediately perfect. The Bible speaks to a world that is messed up. And God's decrees for that world do not clean up every mess instantaneously. As such, the Bible's mandates were not always working within an ideal situation to begin with. Rather, they were expedient for the environment that God's people inhabited at that time. God's commands to the Israelites about war, slaves, women, and justice made things incrementally better than they were, but not exactly perfect if judged by the standards of the New Testament or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Amen? My final reason is that ultimately we're wearing 21st century Western lenses on when we come to a passage like this. All we see might not be as it really is. This is why we must question our questions. Context is king when we come to a passage like this. There are good reasons we probably don't understand everything. There's a vast cultural gap between us and them. We must acknowledge our foreignness to the world of the ancient Near East. So, so slavery, for instance, like we see all over this passage. What do you guys think? What comes into your mind when you think about slavery? Yeah, slavery in this country, right? The, the transatlantic slave trade. Horrific. Evil. If we put that understanding of, of slavery onto this passage, we, we totally miss this passage. That, that was not how, how slavery worked for Israel. God just rescued his people. He just redeemed his people out of the oppression of slavery from Egypt. What we see here is not that. So we must not read our own country's history into Israel's. That would be anachronistic, right? That's comparing apples to oranges. And in all reality, it's quite the opposite. I mean, look at verse 16 of chapter 21 for crying out loud. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. The transatlantic slave trade is condemned, (laughs) Right here in this passage, one commentator says the the Bible contains the seeds that would eventually lead to the abolition of the slave trade. Praise God, right? But I think we also do need to acknowledge the, the, the color of compromise from the church in America especially as we enter into Black History Month. That this passage was one of the passages used by professing Christians, arguing that God condones slavery, that God's okay with it. Read Exodus 21 and 22, they'd say. Enough with this talk about abolition. 
So I, I applauded some scholars earlier from Southern Seminary. But, but, but the SBC, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, began, was created for one reason. So they could keep their slaves. This is our history, church. So as a so-called Christian nation, shame on us. It's 2023 and 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is still the most segregated place in this nation. There is still much work to be done. Amen? Sweet. Mark your calendars. March 5th, we're our next Theology on the Ground on race. A couple more things about Israel's slavery before we move on. Israel's slavery was voluntary, right? It it was voluntary slavery or or servitude. It was to pay off debts. It put a roof, food, clothing on those who were in difficult seasons of life. It was not chattel slavery like we had here in America. Matter of fact, the end of verse 2 in chapter 21 says this, But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. It wasn't even perpetual. It ended, hopefully leaving the servant off in a better situation than they were six years prior. And sometimes the servants wouldn't want it to end. Look at verse 5. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and I don't want to go free. Yeah, go read narrative life of, of, of Frederick Douglass. We're, we're talking about two different realities here. Verses 7 through 11, the, the man is actually set, selling his daughter for a future that his poverty can't provide. Or verses 20 and 21, these slaves actually have rights. This is unheard of in the ancient Near East. This was not Israel's experience under Pharaoh. So as we deal with these passages in their proper context, still tough, though not quite as jarring as they are at first glance, but if, if, if one of the, the functions of the law is also to show us the heart of God, show us God's character, well, like we say in many of our GCs, what do we discover about God from this passage? A few things. First, God's care for the oppressed. After hearing how servitude was a means of grace to those struggling to survive, Look at what it says in verse 21 of chapter 22. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Continues in verse 22. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry to me, I will certainly hear their cry. God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed Verse 25 talks about lending money and not taking interest. And at the end of verse 27, he says, For I am a compassionate God. Some of y'all just needed to hear that this morning. Our God is compassionate. If you read this entire section, you also hear God's heart for justice. 
If you kill, you get killed. If you steal, you pay for it. Our God is fair. This is also good news. And finally, we see God's heart for his own glory. He will not share his throne with another. And that as well is good news if he's God. Look at verse 20 of chapter 22. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. This is why he'll not put up with sorcerers, verse 18. Blasphemers, verse 28. Those who hold back offerings, verse 29. This is why he wants their firstborn son and their livestock, verse 29 to 30. He wants his people's hearts. He wants his people's hearts. Ultimately, what we see from all these laws is this. God is seeking a holy nation. A people devoted to him. Giving him their full allegiance. Verse 31 says, You are to be my holy people. And that is what the the book of the covenant is all about. You are to be my holy people. And that word holy means actually much more than just set apart. It's, It's a devoted to devoted to God was calling Israel to throw away their counterfeit gods and give him their full allegiance. Is there any counterfeit gods that you might still be holding on to? As we know, and we'll continue to find out Israel has many, they fail miserably and ultimately they lack devotion for God. And so they will never live up to that call. You are to be God's holy people. Israel was called to to walk in God's ways, imitating God and in doing so showing the surrounding nations who this God, the great I am is. They had a missional call. So what's our application from this text this morning? Make sure you don't let your bull kill someone. <laughs> There's actually an indirect principle that we should follow there. But, but before we actually get into application, I think we need to ask the question, what do we do with the law? We're not Israel. Are we still directly under The law. From the Ten Commandments to the Book of the Covenant, which we read this morning, or the rest of the 613 laws from the Old Covenant, what do we do with the law? We noted earlier the law is a unit, it is a whole, it is one. So, what do we do with it? We can't chop it up and keep what we like and throw away the rest. From keeping the Sabbath to murder, like we see in the Ten Commandments, from not exposing our private parts on the steps of the altar to not eating meat torn by wild beasts like you'd see in the rest of this passage if you, if you read it on your own. What do we do with the law? Well, the Apostle Paul is helpful here. Here's what he says in the book of Galatians about the law. We were confined under the law, imprisoned, 
until, that's an important word, until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until, until Christ. So that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. No longer under. In Romans he says, for Christ is the telos. The telos or the end. Christ is the the goal or the culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you believe the gospel? The good news that Jesus is the saving king. So if you do, you're, you're not under the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law himself. But you may be thinking, well, what are we under? We've got to be under something. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how he's not under the law of Moses, but at the same time, he's not without law. And he goes on to explain that he's under the law of Christ. The law of Christ. That is what we are under, church. The law of Christ. Now it's going to take a Redemption Institute course to fully unpack that. But we are under the law of Christ. Friends, if you're trusting Jesus this morning as your only hope in life and death, Christ has fulfilled the law. You're now under his law. And like Jesus says in John's gospel, those who love me obey my commandments and they aren't a burden. His call to follow him goes something like this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the question to Israel is also the question to us. Will we be? Will we be, RP, devoted to God? Will we be his holy people? Unlike Israel, we actually have what it takes. Unlike the law of Moses, the law of Christ is now the law written on our hearts that Jeremiah spoke of. Ezekiel goes even further as as we find out that this new law is the Holy Spirit placed within us. And now as God's holy people, we can be his holy, devoted people, led by the Spirit as we follow Jesus, our King. As we close, here's my final question to you guys this morning. Are you a Christian? That's a legit question. Are you a Christian? Namely, does the Holy Spirit live in you? Here's what it looks like for us in the new covenant to be God's holy, God's devoted, spirit-filled people. Paul says this in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit The law written within our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let me read that list again. I'll read it a little slower. You can close your eyes if you like. Imagine what this would look like in your life. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. Could you imagine a church that produced the fruit of the Spirit? Talk about nine marks of a healthy church. There's one thing that Paul says he taught to all the churches. You know what that is? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's this. His way of life. Oh, RP. Let us be God's devoted, spirit-filled people who don't just talk the Christian talk, but walk the Christian walk. Let us be God's holy people as we leave here, devoted to Christ and empowered by his Holy Spirit. To the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. God, we want to be that, your holy people. God, thank you for Christ, that he has fulfilled the law, that now we are under his reign and rule. Thank you that through Christ we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. God, help us to be who we already are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.